Section 10 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Anguillette by the Countess de Murat. Translated by James Planchet. Part 2. The unfortunate Hebe thus passed her days, struggling between her love and her desire to forget it. The ship had been a month at sea without touching anywhere, when one morning that the princess was on deck, she saw land at a distance, which appeared to be that of a very lovely country. The trees were of surprising height and beauty, and as the vessel neared them, she perceived they were covered with birds of the most brilliant plumage, whose songs made a charming concert. Their notes were very soft, and it appeared as if they were afraid of making too much noise. They landed on this beautiful shore. The princess descended from the vessel, followed by her women, and from the moment she breathed the air of this island, some unknown power seemed to set her heart at rest, and she fell into an agreeable slumber, which for a short time sealed up her beautiful eyes. This pleasant country, to which she was a stranger, was the peaceful island, the fairy Anguillette, a near relation of the princes who reigned in these parts, had conferred upon it for two thousand years the happy power of curing unfortunate attachments. It is confidently asserted that it still possesses that power, but the difficulty is to find the island. The prince who reigned in it at that period was descended in a right line from the celebrated Princess Carpillon and her charming husband, of whom a modern fairy wiser and more polished than those of ancient times, has so gracefully recounted the wonderful adventures. While the fair Hebe enjoyed a repose, the sweetness of which she had not tasted for six months, the prince of the peaceful island was taking an airing in the wood that fringed the shore. He was seated in his car, drawn by four young white elephants, and surrounded by a portion of his court. The sleeping princess attracted his attention. Her beauty astonished him. He descended from his car with a haste and vivacity unusual to his nature. He felt at the sight of her all the love which the charms of Hebe were worthy to inspire. The noise awoke her, and on opening her lovely eyes, she was struck by a thousand beauties in the young prince. He was of the same age as Hebe, just nineteen. He was perfectly handsome, his figure full of grace, his height above the ordinary standard, and his hair, which fell in rich curls down to his waist, was of the same colour as Hebe's. His dress was composed of feathers of a thousand different colours, over which he wore a sort of mantle, with a train all made of swan's down, and fastened on his shoulders by the finest jewels in the world. His girdle was of diamonds, from which hung by golden chains a small sabre, the hilt and sheath of which were entirely covered with rubies. A sort of helmet made of feathers, like the rest of his attire, crowned his handsome head, and on one side of it, fastened by a diamond of prodigious size, was a plume of heron's feathers, which added greatly to the effect of his appearance. The prince was the first object that presented itself to the eyes of the young princess at her waking. He appeared worthy of her observation, and for the first time in her life she looked upon another than Atomir with some interest. Everything assures me, said the prince of the peaceful island to the princess, that you can be no other than the divine Hebe. Alas, who else could possess so many charms? 
Who, my lord, replied the young princess, blushing as she rose to her feet, could have so soon informed you of my having landed on this island? A powerful fairy, answered the young monarch, who, desirous of making me the happiest prince in the world, and this country the most fortunate, had promised to lead you hither, and had even permitted me to indulge in the proudest hopes. But I am too well aware, he added with a sigh, that my fate depends much more upon your favour than upon hers. After this speech, to which she replied with much propriety, the prince requested her to enter his car, that she might be conducted to the palace, and out of respect to her, he would have declined taking his place in it. But as she had gathered from his language and his attendants that he was the sovereign of the island, she insisted on his seating himself beside her. Never had two such beautiful persons been seen in the same car. All the prince's courtiers at the sight involuntarily burst into a tumult of applause. On the road the young prince entered into conversation with Hebe with great animation and tenderness, and the princess, happy to find her heart once more at ease, had recovered all her natural vivacity. They reached the palace. It was not far from the sea-coast. It was approached through long and beautiful avenues, bordered by canals of running water. It was built entirely of ivory and roofed with agate. The prince's guards were drawn up in line in all the courts. In the first they were clothed with yellow feathers and carried quivers, bows, and arrows of silver. In the second they were all clothed with flame-coloured feathers and wore sabres with golden hilts and sheaths ornamented with turquoises. The royal party entered the third court, in which the guards were dressed in white feathers and held in their hands demi-lances painted and gilt and entwined with garlands of flowers. There was never any war in that country, so that they did not carry any formidable weapons. The prince, descending from his car, led the lovely Hebe to a magnificent apartment. His court was numerous, the ladies were beautiful, the men gallant and graceful. And although everybody in the island was dressed in feathers only, they evinced so much taste in the arrangement of the colours that the effect was very agreeable. That evening the prince of the peaceful island gave a superb banquet to the beautiful Hebe, which was followed by a concert of flutes, lutes, theorbos, and harpsichords. In that country they were not fond of any noisy instruments. The music was very charming. When it had lasted some time, a very sweet voice sang the following words. Ever to be thy beauty's slave I swear, nor can my heart conceive a happier state than constant bondage in a chain so fair, faithful as fond, on thee depends my fate. The prince gazed on Hebe while this tender air was sung, with an expression which persuaded her that the verses but declared his own sentiments. When the concert was over, the prince of the peaceful island, as it was late, led the princess to the apartment selected for her. It was the most beautiful room in the palace. She found in it a great many ladies, who had been chosen by the prince to have the honour of attending upon her. The prince quitted the beautiful Hebe, the most enamoured of men. The princess retired to rest, the ladies of the court withdrew, and no one remained in the bedchamber except the attendants she had brought with her. Who could have believed it? said she to them, as soon as they were left together. My heart is tranquil. What deity has appeased my sufferings? 
I no longer love Atimir. I can think that he is the husband of Ilerie without dying of grief. Is not all this a dream which passes around me? No, she continued after a moment's pause, for even my dreams were never so free from agitation. She then returned thanks a thousand times to Anguillette and fell asleep. When she woke the next morning, the fairy appeared to her with a gracious smile upon her countenance, which she had not seen her wear since the fatal day she had requested the gift of love. At length, said the kind fairy, I have fortunately brought you hither. Your heart is free, and therefore it may be happy. I have cured you of a baneful passion, but Hebe, may I trust that the fearful torments to which you have been exposed will sufficiently induce you to shun for ever those places in which you might chance to meet the ungrateful Atimir. What promises did not the young princess make to the fairy? How repeatedly did she abjure love and her faithless lover? Remember at least your promises, rejoined the fairy, with an air that inspired respect. You will perish with Atimir, should you ever seek again to behold him, but everything around you here ought to prevent your entertaining a desire so fatal to your existence. I will no longer conceal from you what I have determined upon in your favour. The prince of the peaceful island is my kinsman. I protect him and his empire. He is young, he is amiable, and no prince in the world is so worthy of being your husband. Reign, then, fair Hebe, in his heart and over his realm. Your royal father consents to your union. I was in his palace yesterday. I informed him and the queen of your present position, and they gave me full power to care for your future fortunes. The princess was greatly tempted to ask the fairy what news had been heard of Atimir and Ilerie since her departure. But she dared not, after so many favours, run the risk of displeasing her. She employed to thank her all the eloquence the fairy had gifted her with. Her attendants now entered the chamber, and the fairy disappeared. As soon as Hebe had risen, twelve children of the most perfect beauty, dressed as cupids, brought to her from the prince twelve crystal baskets, filled with the most brilliant and fragrant flowers in the world. These flowers covered sets of jewels, of all colours, and of marvellous beauty. In the first basket presented to her, she found a note containing these lines. To the divine Hebe, that I adored thee, yesterday I swore a hundred times, and broken ne'er can be the vows I uttered from my fond heart's core, for love himself dictated them to me, and beauty such as thine ensureth constancy. After what the fairy had ordained, the princess comprehended that she ought to receive these attentions from her new admirer as those of a prince who was shortly to be her husband. She received the little cupids very graciously, and they had scarcely taken their departure when twenty-four dwarfs, fancifully but magnificently attired, appeared bearing other presents. They consisted of dresses made entirely of feathers, but the colours, the work, and the jewels with which they were ornamented were so beautiful that the princess admitted she had never seen anything so elegant. She chose a rose-coloured dress to wear that day. Her head-dress was composed of plumes of the same colour. She appeared so charming with these new ornaments that the prince of the peaceful island, who came to see her as soon as she was dressed, felt his passion for her redoubled. All the court hastened to admire the princess. 
In the evening the prince proposed to the fair Hebe to descend into the palace gardens, which were admirably laid out. During the promenade the prince informed Hebe that the fairy had, for the last four years, led him to expect that princess's arrival in the peaceful island. But shortly after that period, added the prince, on my pressing her to fulfil her promise, she appeared distressed, and said to me, The princess Hebe is destined by her father to another, but if my science does not deceive me, she will not marry the prince who has been chosen for her husband. I will let you know the issue. Some months afterwards the fairy returned to the island. Fate favours you, said she to me. The prince who was to have married Hebe will not be her husband, and in a short time you will behold here the most beautiful princess in the world. It is true, replied Hebe, blushing, that I was to have married the son of a king whose dominions were adjacent to those of my father, but, after several events, the love he conceived for the princess my sister induced him to fly with her from my father's kingdom. The prince of the peaceful island said a thousand tender things to the beautiful Hebe, respecting the happy destiny which, in accordance with the fairy's desire, had brought the princess into his dominions. She listened to him with greater pleasure, as it interrupted her account of her own adventures, for she feared she could not speak of her faithless lover without the prince's observing how great had been her affection for him. The prince of the peaceful island led Hebe into a grotto, highly decorated, and embellished by wonderful fountains. The further end of the grotto was dark. There were a great many niches in it, filled with statues of nymphs and shepherds but they could scarcely be distinguished in the obscurity. As soon as the princess had remained a few minutes in the grotto, she heard some agreeable music. A sudden and very brilliant illumination disclosed to her that it was a portion of these statues who were performing this music, while the rest advanced and danced before her a very elegant and well-conceived ballet. It was intermixed with sweet and tender songs. They had placed all the actors in this divertissement in the depths of the grotto to surprise the princess more agreeably. After the ballet, wild men appeared and served up a superb collation under an arbour of jasmine and orange flowers. The entertainment had nearly reached its termination when suddenly the fairy Anguillette appeared in the air, seated in a car drawn by four monkeys. She descended and announced to the prince of the peaceful island a delightful piece of good fortune by apprising him that it was her desire he should become the husband of Hebe, and that the beautiful princess had promised her consent. The prince, transported with joy, was uncertain at the moment whether his first thanks were due to Hebe or to Anguillette. And although joy does not inspire one with such affecting expressions as sorrow, he nevertheless acquitted himself with much talent and grace. The fairy determined not to leave the prince and princess, before the day fixed for their union. It was to be in three days. She made superb presents to the fair Hebe and to the prince of the peaceful island, and at length on the day she had named, they repaired, followed by their whole court and an infinite number of the inhabitants of the island, to the temple of Hymen. It was constructed simply of branches of olive and palm trees interlaced, and which by the power of the fairy never withered. Hymen was there and represented by a statue of white marble, crowned with roses, elevated on an altar decorated only with flowers, and leaning on a little cupid of exquisite beauty, who with a smiling countenance presented to him a crown of myrtle. Anguillette, who had erected this temple, 
resolved that everything in it should be marked by the greatest simplicity to show that love alone could render Hymen happy. The difficulty is to unite them. As it was a miracle worthy the power of a fairy, she had joined them indissolubly in the peaceful island, and contrary to the custom in other kingdoms, one could there be married and remain fond and faithful. In this temple of Hymen, the fair Hebe, led by Anguillette, plighted her troth to the prince of the peaceful island, and received his vows with pleasure. She did not feel for him the same involuntary inclination which she had done for Atomir, but her heart being at that moment free from passion, she received this husband by command of the fairy, as a prince worthy of her by his personal merit, and still more so by the affection he bore to her. The marriage was celebrated by a thousand splendid entertainments, and Hebe found herself happy with the prince who adored her. In the meanwhile the king, Hebe's father, had received some ambassadors from Atomir, who sent them to request permission for him to espouse Illyri. The king, Atomir's father, was dead, and that prince was consequently absolute master in his own country. The hand of the princess he had carried off was accorded to him with joy. After the marriage, Queen Illyri sent other ambassadors to her royal parents, request permission for her to revisit their court, and to obtain their forgiveness for the fault which love had caused her to commit, and which the merit of Atomir might be pleaded in excuse of. The king consented, and Atomir proceeded to the palace with his bride. A thousand entertainments marked the day of their arrival. Shortly afterwards, the fair Hebe and her charming husband sent ambassadors also to the king and queen to announce their marriage to them. Anguillette had already informed them of the event, but they did not on that account receive the ambassadors with less delight or distinction. Atomir was with the king when they were introduced to their first audience. The lovely form of Hebe could never be effaced from a heart in which she had reigned with such supreme power. Atomir sighed in spite of himself at the recital of the happiness of the Prince of the Peaceful Island. He even accused Hebe of being inconstant, forgetting how much reason he had given her for becoming so. The ambassadors of the Prince of the Peaceful Island returned to their sovereign laden with honours and presents. They related to the princess how much delight the king and queen had manifested at the tidings of her happy marriage. But, oh, two faithful chroniclers, they informed her at the same time that the princess Illyri and Atomir were at the court. These names, so dangerous to her peace, renewed her anxiety. She was happy, but can mortals command uninterrupted felicity? She could not resist her impatience to return to the court of the king, her father. It was only, she said, to see once more him and her mother. She believed this herself, and how often, when we are in love, do we mistake our own feelings. Notwithstanding the threats uttered by the fairy in order to prevent her from revisiting the spot where she might again behold Atomir, she proposed this voyage to the prince of the peaceful island. At first he refused, and Guillette had forbidden him to let Hebe go out of his dominions. She continued to press him. He adored her and was ignorant of the passion she had formerly entertained for Atomir. Is it possible to refuse anything to those we love? He hoped to please Hebe by his blind obedience. He gave orders for their departure, and never was there seen such magnificence as was displayed in his equipage and on board his vessels. 
The sage Anguillette, indignant at the little respect paid by Hebe and the Prince of the Peaceful Island to her instructions, abandoned them to their destiny, and did not make her appearance to renew the prudent advice by which they had so little profited. The prince and princess embarked, and after a very prosperous voyage arrived at the court of Hebe's father. The king and queen were extremely delighted to behold once more that dear princess. They were charmed with the prince of the peaceful island. They celebrated the arrival of the royal pair by a thousand entertainments throughout the kingdom. Illyrie trembled on hearing of the return of Hebe. It was decided that they should meet, and that no reference whatever should be made to past events. Atimir requested to be allowed to see Hebe. It appeared to Illyrie, indeed, that he preferred his request with a little too much eagerness. The princess Hebe blushed when he entered her apartment, and they both felt an embarrassment, out of which all their presence of mind could not extricate them. The king, who was present, remarked it. He joined in their conversation, and to render the visit shorter, proposed to the princess to descend into the palace gardens. Atimir dared not offer his hand to Hebe. He bowed to her respectfully and retired. But what thoughts and what feelings did he not carry away with him in his heart? All the deep and tender passion he had formerly felt for Hebe was rekindled in a moment. He hated Illyrie. He hated himself. Never was infidelity followed by so much repentance, nor by so much suffering. In the evening he went to the queen's apartments. The princess Hebe was there. He had no eyes but for her. He sought assiduously for an opportunity of speaking to her. She continued to avoid him, but her glances were too clearly comprehended by him for his peace. He persisted for some time in compelling her to observe that her eyes had regained their former empire over him. Hebe's heart was alarmed by it. Atimir appeared to her still too charming. She determined to shun him as carefully as he sought her. She never spoke to him but in presence of the queen, and then only when she could not possibly avoid it. She resolved also to advise the prince of the peaceful island to return speedily to his own kingdom. But with what difficulty do we endeavour to fly from those we love? One evening that she was reflecting on this subject, she shut herself up in her cabinet, in order to indulge in her musings without interruption. She found in her pocket a note which had been slipped into it unperceived by her, and the handwriting of Atimir, which she recognised, threw her into an agitation which cannot be described. She considered she ought not to read it, but her heart triumphed over her reason, and opening it she found these lines. No more, my love, can to your heart appeal. For me, indifference alone you feel. Your heart, fair Hebe, faithless is in turn. So soon my fatal falsehood could it learn. Alas, why can you not, with equal speed, back to its early faith the truant lead? The happy time is past when he be fair, loves pains and pleasures deigned with me to share. Both have their fetters broken, it is true, but I my bondage hasten to renew. Alas, for my sad fault must I atone by languishing in this sweet chain alone? Ah, cruel one! exclaimed the princess. What have I done to you that you seek to rekindle in my soul a passion which has cost me so much agony? The tears of Hebe interrupted her utterance. In the meanwhile, Illyrie was tortured by a jealousy which was but too well founded. Atimir, carried away by his passion, 
lost all control over himself. The prince of the peaceful island began to perceive his attachment to Hebe, but he was desirous of examining more narrowly the conduct of Atomir before he spoke to the princess on the subject. He adored her with unabating constancy, and feared by his remarks to draw her attention to the passion of his rival. A few days after Hebe had received Atomir's note, a tournament was proclaimed. The princes and all the young noblemen of the court were invited to break a lance in honour of the ladies. The king and queen honoured the tournament with their presence. The fair Hebe and the princess Ilyri were to confer the prizes with their own hands. One was a sword, the hilt and sheath of which were entirely covered with jewels of extraordinary beauty, the other a bracelet of brilliance of the finest water. All the knights entered for the lists, made their appearance with marvellous magnificence, and mounted on the finest horses in the world. Each wore the colours of his mistress, and on their shields were pictured gallant devices, expressive of the sentiments of their hearts. The prince of the peaceful island was superbly attired, and rode a dun-coloured horse with black mane and tail, of incomparable beauty. In all his appointments, rose colour was predominant, it was the favourite colour of Hebe. An ample plume of the same hue floated above his light helmet. He drew down the applause of all the spectators, and looked so handsome in his brilliant armour that Hebe mentally reproached herself a thousand times for entertaining such feelings as the unhappiness of another had inspired her with. The retinue of the Prince of the Peaceful Island was numerous. They were all attired according to the fashion of their country, Everything around him was elegant and costly. An esquire bore his shield, and all were eager to examine the device. It was a heart pierced with an arrow. A little cupid was depicted shooting many others at it to inflict fresh wounds, but all except the first appeared to have been shot in vain. Beneath were these words, I fear no others. The colour and the device of the Prince of the Peaceful Island rendered it obvious that it was as the champion of the fair Hebe he had chosen to enter the lists. The spectators were still admiring his magnificent array when Atomir appeared, mounted on a proud and fiery steed, entirely black. The prevailing colour of the dress he had assumed for that day was what is usually termed dead leaf, unadorned with gold, silver or jewels, but on his helmet he wore a tuft of rose-coloured feathers and although he affected great negligence in his attire, he was so handsome, and bore himself so proudly, that from the moment he entered the lists, no one looked at anything else. On his shield, which he carried himself, was painted a cupid trampling upon some chains, while at the same time he was loading himself with others that were heavier. Around the figure were these words, These alone are worthy of me. The train of Atomir were attired in dead leaf and silver, and on them he had showered jewels. It was composed of the principal noblemen of his court, and although they were all fine-looking men, it was easy to see by the air of Atomir that he was born to command them. It is impossible to describe the various emotions which the sight of Atomir awakened in the hearts of Hebe and Illyri, and the poignant jealousy which the prince of the peaceful island felt when he saw floating over the helmet of Atomir a plume of the same colour as his own. The motto of his device kindled his anger into a fury, which he controlled for the moment, only to choose a better time to vent it on his rival. 
The king and queen saw clearly enough the audacity and imprudence of Atimir, and were exceedingly angry with him, but it was not the time to show it. The tilting was commenced amid a flourish of trumpets which rent the air. It was exceedingly good. All the young knights made proof of their skill. The prince of the peaceful island, although a prey to his jealousy, signalized himself particularly, and remained conqueror. Atimir, who was aware that the prize for the first encounter would be given by Illyri, did not present himself to dispute the victory with the prince of the peaceful island. The judges of the field declared the latter victor, and amidst the acclamation and applause of all the spectators, he advanced with the greatest possible grace to the spot where the royal family were seated, to receive the diamond bracelet. The princess Illyri presented it to him. He received it with due respect, and having saluted the king, queen, and princesses, returned to his place in the lists. The mournful Illyri had too clearly observed the contempt with which the fickle Atimir had treated the prize destined to be accorded by her hand. She sighed sadly, while the fair Hebe felt a secret joy, which reason vainly endeavoured to stifle in her heart. Other courses were run, with results similar to those which had preceded them. The prince of the peaceful island, animated by the presence of Hebe, performed wonders, and was a second time conqueror. But Atimir, weary of beholding the glory of his rival, and flattered by the idea of receiving the prize from the hand of Hebe, presented himself at the opposite end of the lists. The rivals gazed at each other fiercely, and the impending encounter between two such great princes was distinguished by the fresh agitation which it excited in the two princesses. The princes ran their course with equal advantage. Each broke his lance fairly, without swerving in his saddle. The acclamations were redoubled, and the princes, without giving their horses time to breathe, returned to their places, received fresh lances, and ran a second course with the same address as the first. The king, who feared to see fortune give the victory to either of these rivals, and in order to spare the feelings of both, sent in all haste to them to say that they ought to be satisfied with the glory they had acquired, and to request them to let the tilting terminate for that day with the course they had just run. The king's messenger having approached them, they listened with impatience to the royal request, particularly Atimir, who, seizing the first opportunity to reply, said, Go tell the king that I should be unworthy the honour he does me in taking an interest in my glory, if I could remain satisfied without conquest. Let us see, rejoined the prince of the peaceful island, clapping spurs to his horse. Who best deserves the esteem of the king and the favours of fortune? The king's messenger had not retraced his steps to the royal balcony before the two rivals, animated by stronger feelings than the mere desire to carry off the prize of the joust, had met in full career. Fortune favoured the audacious Atimir. He was the conqueror. The horse of the prince of the peaceful island, fatigued with the many severe courses he had run, fell and rolled his master in the dust. What joy for Atimir! And what fury for the unfortunate prince of the peaceful island! Leaping to his feet again instantly, and advancing to his rival before any one could reach to part them, Thou hast conquered me in these games, Atimir, said he, with an air which sufficiently expressed his wrath. But it is with the sword that our quarrel must be decided. Willingly, replied the haughty Atimir, I will await thee to-morrow, at sunrise, 
in the wood that borders the palace gardens. The judges of the field joined them as these last words were uttered, and the princes mutually affected unconcern, for fear the king should suspect and frustrate their intentions. The prince of the peaceful island remounted his horse, and rode with all the speed he could urge it to, from the fatal spot where he had been defeated by Atomir. In the meanwhile, that prince proceeded to receive the prize of the joust from the hand of Hebe, who presented it to him with a confusion sufficiently betraying the conflicting emotions in her bosom, while Atomir, in receiving it, displayed all the extravagancies of a passionate lover. The king and queen, who kept their eyes upon him, could not fail to observe this, and returned to the palace much discontented with the termination of the day. Atomir, occupied only by his passion, left the lists, forbidding any of his train to accompany him, and Illyri, smarting with grief and jealousy, retired to her apartments. What then were the feelings of Hebe? I must depart, she said to herself. What other remedy is there for the evil I anticipate? In the meanwhile, the king and the queen, determined to request Atomir would return to his own dominions, to avoid the painful consequences which his love might entail upon them. They resolved also to make the same proposition to the prince of the peaceful island, in order not to show any preference for either. But, ah, too tardy prudence! Whilst they were deliberating how best to secure the departure of the two princes, the rivals were preparing to meet in mortal combat. Hebe, on returning from the lists, immediately inquired for the prince of the peaceful island. She was answered that he was in the palace gardens, that he had desired he might not be followed, and that he appeared very melancholy. The fair Hebe thought it was her duty to seek and console him for the slight mischances which had happened to him, and therefore, without staying a moment in her own apartment, descended into the gardens, followed only by a few of her women. In the course of her search for the Prince of the Peaceful Island, she entered a shady alley, and came suddenly on the enamoured Atomir, who, transported by his passion, and listening only to its promptings, threw himself on his knees at a short distance from the princess, and drawing the sword which he had that day received from her hand, exclaimed, Hear me, beautiful Hebe, or see me die at your feet. Hebe's attendants, terrified by the actions of the prince, rushed upon him and endeavoured to force from his grasp the sword, the point of which he had directed towards himself with desperate resolution. Hebe, the unhappy Hebe, would have flown from the spot, but how many reasons concurred to detain her near him she loved. The desire to suppress the scandal this adventure might create, the intention to implore Atomir to endeavour to stifle a passion which was so perilous to them, the pity naturally awakened by so affecting an object, Everything, in short, conspired to arrest her flight. She approached the prince. Her presence suspended his fury. He let fall his sword at the feet of the princess. Never was so much agitation, so much love, so much anguish, displayed in an interview that lasted but a few minutes. No words can express the feelings of those wretched lovers during that brief period. Hebe, alarmed at finding herself in the company of Atomir, almost perhaps in sight of the prince of the peaceful island, made a great effort to depart, and left him with a command never to see her more. What an order for Atomir! But for the recollection of the combat to which he had been challenged by the prince of the peaceful island, 
he would have turned his sword a hundred times against his own breast, but he trusted to perish in revenging himself on his rival. In the meanwhile, the fair Hebe shut herself up in her own chamber to avoid more surely the sight of Atimir. Relentless fairy, she cried, thou didst only predict my death as the consequence of my again beholding this unhappy prince, but the tortures I suffer are a much more dreadful penalty. Hebe sent her attendants to seek for the prince of the peaceful island in the gardens and throughout the palace, but he was nowhere to be found, and she became extremely anxious on his account. They hunted for him all night long, but in vain, for he had concealed himself in a little rustic building in the middle of the wood, to be more certain that no one could prevent his proceeding to the spot fixed on for the combat. He was on the ground at sunrise, and Atimir arrived a few minutes afterwards. The two rivals, impatient for revenge and victory, drew their swords. It was the first time the prince of the peaceful island had wielded his in earnest, for war was unknown in his island. He proved, however, not a less redoubtable antagonist on that account to Atimir. He had little skill but much bravery and great love. He fought like a man who set no value on his life, and Atimir worthily sustained in this combat the high reputation he had previously acquired. The princes were animated by too many vindictive feelings for their encounter not to terminate fatally. After having fought with equal advantage for a considerable period, they dealt each other at the same instant so furious a blow that both fell to the earth which was speedily red with their blood. The prince of the peaceful island fainted with the loss of his, and Atimir, mortally wounded, uttered but the name of Hebe as he expired for her sake. One of the parties in search of the prince of the peaceful island arrived on the spot, and were horror-struck at the sight of this cruel spectacle. The princess Hebe, urged by her anxiety, had descended into the gardens. She hastened towards the place from whence she heard the exclamations of her people, who uttered in confusion the names of the two princes, and beheld these fatal and affecting objects. She believed the prince of the peaceful island was dead as well as Atmir, and at that moment there was little difference to be distinguished between them. "'Precious lives!' exclaimed Hebe despairingly, after gazing for an instant on the unfortunate princes. "'Precious lives, which have been sacrificed for me! I hasten to avenge you by the termination of my own!' With these words she flung herself upon the fatal sword Atimir had received from her hands, and buried the point in her bosom before her people, astonished at this dreadful scene, had power to prevent her. She expired, and the fairy Anguillette, moved by so much misery, despite of all the obstacles her science had enabled her to raise, appeared on the spot which had witnessed the destruction of these beautiful beings. The fairy upbraided fate, and could not restrain her tears. Then hastening to succour the prince of the peaceful island, who she knew was still breathing, she healed his wound, and transported him in an instant to his own island, where, by the miraculous power she had conferred on it, the prince consoled himself for his loss, and forgot his passion for Hebe. The king and queen, who had not the advantage of such assistance, gave themselves up entirely to their sorrow, and time only brought them consolation. As to Illyrie, nothing could exceed her despair. She remained constant to her grief, and to the memory of the ungrateful Atimir. Meanwhile, Anguillette, having transported the prince of the peaceful island to his dominions, 
touched with her wand the sad remains of the charming Atomir and the lovely Hebe. At the same instant they were transformed into two trees of the most perfect beauty. The fairy gave them the name of charms, to preserve forever the remembrance of the charms which had been so brilliantly displayed in the persons of these unfortunate lovers. End of Aguillette End of Section 10